Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited with the guest that we have today. We're going to be talking a lot about, you know, building, scaling, all the good stuff that we love to hear. Also raising money while still, you know, going after your studies. So you name it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tess Michaels. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So originally you were born in Philadelphia, but obviously you spent some time in Texas too. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, life growing up. So, um, you know, was in Philadelphia. My, you know, mother was in residency at the time. Um, and uh, after that, we spent about a decade in New York and at some point, somehow worked our way over to Plano, Texas, the beautiful burbs of Dallas, uh, which was, you know, a great place to just grow up, have a ton of space to stretch out. And for me to be, at the time, a total science fair nerd, I was actually spending most of my time growing up traveling, doing research on Alzheimer's, spent my summers doing research in Italy, Korea, uh, really incredible childhood, but made quite the pivot when I headed to undergrad right back to Philadelphia um, to, to take my next big step. Now, when you when you did the undergrad, I mean, that was a quite a, an interesting mix because you did biology, yeah. management. I mean, you also did impact investing. So, so many different things at the same time. So, I mean, that that's kind of random. So, how did that combo, you know, come <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, totally. So, um, I know it, it definitely seems like a mix. So I went to UPenn to do a dual degree program. So as you said, did impact investing and operations management in Warden, and then did biology in the college. And I think it was really a fusion of off, oftentimes it's what you have exposure to, right? I grew up in a family where, you know, I, half of my family was in healthcare, hence the interest in biology and the interest in science fairs. And then my father was in business, right? And I really always believed in the power of understanding how you apply um, technical skills or, um, you know, in, in my case, science. And so being able to really understand, you know, how to be a good manager and how to really think about fusing impact, even when I think about 
finance had always been something that was exciting for me. But I will say, you know, going from an accounting class to an organic chemistry class was quite the switch where you're just turning, you know, wearing one hat and then switching very quickly to the next. And in a lot of ways, it was like speaking different languages, right? So now, now in your case, after graduating, I mean, you, you, definitely were on the other side of the table. I mean, now you see you're a founder, but you tried investment banking. You also did private equity. So what did you learn from perhaps, you know, on the investment banking side, like seeing like all these different companies and seeing the deal making, and then also on the private equity side, which is more like the pattern recognition for like identifying the good investments? Yeah, it's uh, a great way of framing it. So Right out of undergrad, I worked in New York at Goldman Sachs um, doing investment banking. And candidly, I really thought about my early career as a way to expose myself to, you know, an industry where or, you know, a, a field where you just had really sharp learning curves. Right. Um, and that's exactly how I felt in investment banking. You learn a lot of skills very quickly. You're around really smart people. And. Uh, I just saw it as a really good foundation for whatever else I wanted to do next. As I then thought about where my career was evolving, I was increasingly fascinated by really interesting software companies, right? Vertical software companies that were able to be really sticky with their um, you know, customer segments. And, uh, and so I then transitioned to Vista Equity Partners doing SaaS investing. And to me, that was just such a great experience of getting to see top tier companies that were finding ways to, you know, disrupt different industries, but do so in a way that was thoughtful, right? Recurring business models, um, you know, high degrees of retention, and really figuring out how do you tackle, you know, a part of a any given customer's solution suite in a way that's very, very, uh, you know, approachable. And so, again, really amazing way to to see a lot of great companies and have pattern recognition, as you alluded to. Now, they say that once a founder, always a founder. And, you know, one thing that really stood out for me here is, you know, when you graduated, you went right into investment banking and private equity. And one thing that is really important here to mention is that while you were in school, you also had your own venture. And in fact, you raised money for this venture. You know, it was a software analytics platform, but why didn't you go at it as an entrepreneur? What happened? Yeah. You're, you're spot on. So I actually built my first business in undergrad. I was 19 years old and it happened very organically. I was actually doing research with a number of professors at Warden and it was on, you know, these hybrid organizations, these companies that, you know, were for profit, but had a mission bend, right? Whether it's the Warby Parkers and the Toms of the world, or companies that are just in industries like healthcare or education. And I became fascinated by the fact that so many large companies were supplementing their businesses with philanthropy, employee volunteerism to just create employee retention. I thought that was fascinating. I built a business organically. And candidly, I did a lot of things as a first timer that, you know, looking back, I'm like, why did I spend so long? on building a product in a vacuum, right? And bringing that out to market and then realizing, wait a second, the customer has all of these nuances of what they need, what they want, right? Um, or thinking about, you know, what our go-to-market strategy was or how our business model worked. 
And so, you know, we got early traction. It was something I was very passionate about conceptually, right? Um, you know, having businesses that have an impact bend is something that will always be core to me. But candidly, we didn't get the lift that I had expected. And momentum is half the battle, right? As a startup, being a B company isn't sufficient, right? You really need to always raise the bar for your peer set and always think about, you know, how are you able to to hit that J curve? And so um, I recognized that while conceptually it was great and we had early traction, we ended up doing a, um, you know, we ended up doing an asset acquisition with another larger player in the space. And they were able to take our assets and do something bigger and better with it. And I was able to then say, let me learn some core skills that will apply. So my next go around, I really do it right. Wow. So you were always looking at investment banking or private equity as perhaps the bridge that would get yes. you to where you wanted to be. Yeah, I, I look, I loved my experiences in finance, no doubt about it, and the peer set there. But I was itching to create, to build again and to really get a second crack at that apple. Now, it didn't take long because you were in Vista Equity and basically what you decided to do was to hit reset. And what a lot of people do when what that means is essentially going into business school. So you ended up going to Harvard. So why why was, you know, that call? Why did you make that call of perhaps going into business school, you know, versus maybe like just like going at it and building your own business? Yeah. I mean, why why going into business school? Yeah, great question. So candidly, I actually was part of a program at Harvard called 2 Plus 2, where you apply to business school while you're still an undergrad. So I had been accepted to Harvard my senior year at Penn. And then they give you, you know, a few years to work in industry and then to go back to school. And so I always knew that was on the map. And the way that I thought through it was, I wanted to really think about business school as an accelerant, right? There is some, something special about you know, the, the level of, of access that you get from ecosystems like that. So to be clear, I spent the months leading up to business school walking around and asking anyone and everyone, if you could change one thing in your life, what would it be, right? And I'm talking about, I asked friends, I asked, you know, uh, folks from work, I asked, um, you know, even Uber drivers, every single Uber that I would sit in. And I kept hearing this recurring theme of, I want to go back to school, but it is so expensive. I don't know what to do about it. And I had the luxury of being very, just moments away from being on a campus in Boston, which let's be clear, Boston has you know, the highest concentration of universities in a very small setting. And I said, this go at building a business, right? Even for myself, I was like, this sticker price is hefty. I feel this firsthand. I know there's a better way to finance one's education. And so I spent the first couple months of business school popping around from campus to campus, asking students, hey, how are you paying for school? And what do you wish could be different, right? And um, and so I really saw business school as an accelerant, and I'm happy to share kind of how I threw myself in and, and what were the tools that kind of helped me get there. So then let's talk about that, because obviously the um, the ideation, you know, is kind of like the part that is essential. I mean, on the first business that you that, that you did, you learned the importance of listening to customers. So that lesson that you learned, you know, that you implemented as part of that ideation of really 
you know, thinking through something and that process of bringing something to life. How did you implement that lesson so that you knew or, or that, or, or perhaps to get you in that path to really get it right? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a number of things I did differently this go around. Um, first is I spent, as I mentioned, multiple months on campuses talking to the end consumer who's the student. On top of that, through my networks, I spoke with investors, right? The capital markets folks to say, what would it take from a scale perspective, from a structuring perspective, to be able to offer a competitive product and market? And then on top of that, I really talked to a number of folks who are other fellow entrepreneurs in the fintech space to say, what did you do right? What did you not do right? Because I don't need to make the mistakes you did. I just need to learn what to avoid this go around, right? And that really helped. And then after we launched the business, let me be clear. So we're in the outcomes-based financing space, right? So we offer products where we can underwrite students using alternative credit based on their future outcomes, right? So you know a nurse is going to have the ability to repay you and they don't need a wealthy parent or co-signer to be able to support me being able to finance them. That was the underlying thesis. And I spent the you know early months of Stride's launch speaking with every single potential customer that called Stride. I mean, I was the customer service team, right? And after you speak to a few hundred students, you have a pretty good sense of their priorities and how you design a product that you know is going to work. So then once you knew you had it right, what was the next step? Yeah. So first of all, I think uh, when you say have it right, one of the things you learn in, in a startup culture is, first of all, every it's like dog years, right? Every day is like a week. Every year is like seven years. And you're learning iterations or as quick as, as, the, as the time flies by. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we've evolved a lot as a business, but always kept the mission really core. For me, some of the key lessons were first, being really thoughtful on who we partnered with on the capital front. How do you create a product that is very competitive right out of the gate so you don't create adverse selection? Second was really around our go-to-market strategy and the evolutions that we've had there to drive scale and efficiency of customer adoption. And then the last was really around, you know, how do we build the right executive team that can scale with the business, right? Because what you do from zero to 20 as a company is very different from 20 to, to 100. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself you need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past and it really helped with unloading depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash dealmakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And for the people that are listening, you know, to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Stride? How do you guys make money? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually took a lot of the early learnings that I got from looking at companies at Vista and thinking about how do we build a platform-based business where schools and investors pay us recurring fees, that includes management fees, servicing fees, you know, et cetera. And how do we build a business that's resilient and not cyclical as we think about the evolution? So let me give you a few examples here. Um, first was, you know, from a go-to-market perspective, we initially had a B2C business, right? Students could find us directly on the site see if they're eligible for funding for their education and apply directly for that funding. That is great. But, you know, from my perspective, it created a lot of access, but at the cost of, you know, limitations on your ability to scale very quickly, right? Because you're going student by student and also predictability limitations. So that was the first thing was being able to migrate over and say, wait a second, what if we could partner directly with the institutions, the schools? Second was thinking about how we don't have a, a revenue model or a business model that's very cyclical. So we expanded from just degree programs, your traditional undergrad and graduate programs, to also include non-degree programs, which let me tell you, COVID has accelerated the demand for non-degree. Boot camp programs, certificate programs. Suddenly, we had enrollments throughout the year instead of just during the summer months. And so we were able to kind of streamline our business model as well. And then lastly, you know, as we thought about uh, market changes, like the market has evolved today, we wanted to make sure that we did not take on the balance sheet risk or the capital markets risk. So we don't fund off of balance sheet. We raise capital from venture investors for our business. That's our people and our platform. And we raise separate capital from banks and credit investors to fund students that is put into special purpose vehicles. Because how much capital have you guys raised to date on the equity side and then on, also on the debt side? 
Yeah. So we've raised a little over $20 million on the equity side. So that's just to fund our hiring. And then we've raised $150 million on the debt side to fund students. And how is it different from the equity side to the debt side? I mean, how, how do you go about it? And, and yeah, how do you make that happen? Yeah. So first of all, the mindset of a venture investor is very different than the mindset of a credit investor. So you wear two very different hats as a business. Venture investors are saying, how am I going to get outsized returns? How am I thinking about a company that has incredible growth, momentum, you know, differentiated IP and a, you know, A plus team, right? Um, and we were very fortunate. We have incredible, um, you know, venture partners and each of our venture rounds have been preempted. And so uh, we, before even formally kicking off the process for our seed round, for our series A round, we had a term sheet from investors and were able to um, you know, kind of raise very quickly, which I'm very grateful for, with partners that we felt very aligned with. Our capital markets fundraises have been quite a bit different. Um, there, we've really raised from scalable banks like Silicon Valley Bank, large, you know, multi-billion dollar credit funds, and then uh, impact investors. And those investors are focused on how do I make sure I make my money back and that we're mitigating any risks here. And that's where it really comes to our thoughtfulness on our underwriting, our segmentation, and making sure that they are working with, you know, folks like ourselves who came from backgrounds in finance and understand the space. Now, for you guys, the um, the go to market because one thing is to build something, and the I mean, but if people don't know about it, it makes no sense, right? So obviously, distribution is absolutely everything. Yes. I know that for you guys, the the process of figuring out the go-to-market and, and figuring out channels too that were effective was a, a, a pivotal moment. So how did that come about? Walk us through through the thought process behind, you know, really figuring the effectiveness behind the channels that you're using. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think oftentimes some of this is initial iteration, right? When we started, again, I had the benefit of being a student on campus saying, wait a second, I think outcomes-based funding is going to be the next big wave of financing products, right? If you look historically, almost all student lending products are principal and interest products. 92% of them require a co-signer, right? The whole point of going to education is to do better than your parents, not to rely on them. So my initial aha was, why aren't there outcomes-based funding products offered at scale? And why can't I, as a consumer in a great program, great school, get access to these products? So we offered a direct-to-consumer model initially. Now, I will say the benefit of starting D2C was we really got to design a product that fit, like was purpose-built for the end consumer, right? Because you're understanding what features they want, what experience they want, right? Um, but as we evolved, we started shifting toward more and more of a B2B model where we would partner directly with these large boot camps and universities. And the benefit of that is they were showcasing our product to their students directly, which allowed us to just have, first of all, little to no CAC, right, as far as acquiring customers. Second of all, really grand, great brand association and affinity. And third of all, to increase our own economics and business model because we were able to get fees from the schools as we drove enrollment through our financing product 
and investors as we drove returns for them. So again, a lot of this was iterative, but now we are a primarily B2B business with multi-year exclusive contracts with our schools and uh, again, a a platform-based model as far as our fees. And part of the go-to-market too is understanding the products that you're going to be using or or, yes. or or putting in front of these people. And you also don't want to spread yourself too thin. So in the case of Stride, how have you guys also thought about product expansion? Totally. So you're so right. I think half of the battle is, especially as a founder, is staying focused in the early days. There's so many interesting ideas out there that you want to test, but I think it's staying focused on your core with thoughtful tests around potential expansion areas. For, so for us, we looked at, first and foremost, education is a wedge market for us, right? So we wanted to enter in with high quality education um, products that we could offer, obviously, via financing, and then really think about what is that end consumer need next on their own you know, financial journey that Stride could offer. But first, again, is really nailing your ability to acquire customers at scale for our existing uh, education financing products. We started with product one, which was an income share agreement, where students would pay a percentage of their income over a set number of years to really align the incentives around the cost of education with the value received. That was probably the most innovative when it comes to the education financing space. Then we offered our second product, which was a retail installment contract with an income trigger. Think of it as a BNPL product with an income trigger, where you essentially offer the income protection. You only pay when you're earning, but when you pay, it's a fixed dollar amount. And now we've expanded into more traditional loan products that are principal and interest bearing. But the beauty of that is we have menu options for our customers. We can maximize our ability to attract customers and have you know, real growth from that basis. And now the next step will be thinking about expansions outside of education financing to support those very same consumers. So as we're thinking about you know, what that could look like, what future, what the future could look like, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Stride is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, education financing is the first big purchase that these consumers make, right? It is the biggest purchase you make at that uh, point in your life. And so if we can nail the student experience, the customer experience now, we will have loyal customers as we think about the full evolution of our products, right? And that is thinking about what are their next set of big purchases? How do we underwrite these students differently? Let me, let me give you an example. A traditional private lender, all they really know about their customer is, did they make their interest payment, yes or no? What we collect at Stride is we have all sorts of income and employment verification tools. So I know, is the individual employed, yes or no? How much are they earning? How fast is that income changing over time? How, fat, how quickly were they promoted? What was their prior educational background? Imagine thinking about sub-segmenting which products these consumers will need based on their earnings, their position in life, you know, their situation, right? And being able to customize for them. So we really want to be their 
one-stop shop when we think about their financial literacy, their financial suite of products, and ultimately being that trusted brand that can serve these consumers you know, from the moment they enter education through the day that they retire. Now, for the people that are listening to get a, an understanding on the scope and size of Stride today, I mean, anything that you can share, like number of employees or anything else that you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, of course. So as a company, uh, we grew over 6x this past year. We have you know, over 10,000 students that we uh, have supported to date, and that's growing very, very quickly. Um, as far as how we think about you know, the business evolution, this last quarter was by far our best quarter yet. We had a 7x year-on-year uh, -year, um, increase in our bookings. And as far as the team, we've tripled the team size over the last nine months and are continuing to grow. We're a Boston-based company, and um, it's been really special, honestly, for me, just hearing you know, the student stories every day and knowing that I get to build something huge and meaningful and that actually matters, right? So, yeah. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine. Yeah. And I bring you back in time, you know, maybe back to that moment where you were still there in Philadelphia, walking around the campus there in Wharton and, and you know, dreaming out and, and, and figuring out, you know, like what kind of company you were, you were going to launch, you know, on your own. And, and if you had the opportunity of sitting, you know, that younger self and, and having a chat and most importantly, giving a, a piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah. Man, there's a lot of advice I would give to my former self, but um, I would say, you know, the primary things are one, it is so important to be bold um, at any age, any stage of your life, and to realize that you will find supporters to back you as long as you bring that confidence around, uh, you know, conviction of what you are building. Second is, you know, just ask a ton of questions early in life at every step of the way. I think this is one of the things that I, at this point in my life, really think about. My team always jokes that they've never met someone who's more of a, a question asker than I am. But I think there's so much you can gain from just absorbing and learning and then knowing how you fine tune how you apply what you do. The last pieces of advice I would think through is one you you know people say you're the average of who you surround yourself with that is so true whether that is the case in building a company and thinking about the executive team that you surround yourself with or thinking about the peer set of founders and supporters and investors that you surround yourself with constantly you know find folks who th think in the mind frame of does this raise the bar? Am I raising the bar? How do I make sure that what I am doing is continuously moving forward and not just flatlining, right? Um, but again, it's been really special building a business and just knowing that, you know, you can be bold and you don't have to know the most in the room. Candidly, if you do know the most in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. And so that, that would be my um, advice to my former self. I love it. So Tess, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yes. Um, look, I'm super responsive on email. My email is Tess, T-E-S-S, -S, at stridefunding.com, um, S-T-R-I-D-E funding.com, um, or add me on LinkedIn, uh, but would love to you know, just 
exchange thoughts and, and get to know any of you. Amazing. Well, Tess, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, absolutely. It was such a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.